The Valley Hub Stories podcast acknowledged the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast has been recorded, Gumbangia country. We express our gratitude for their care of and connection to country throughout time. Welcome to the very first episode of the Valley Hub Stories podcast. We're so happy you're listening and hope that you find yourself feeling more connected to the people you share in community with. Today's guest has a special connection to the Valley Hub, having also featured in the first edition of the Valley Hub e-newsletter. And just a quick note also to say that this week's episode deals with themes of drug use and mental health crisis and won't be suitable for all listeners. So if you feel that it's not for you, please feel free to give this week's episode a miss. Growing up in Beaconsville, Tasmania, Paul Wilson knew he would become a paramedic from the age of 12. Having worked in the Nembucca Valley since 2010, as you can imagine, Paul has seen a lot and he has so many interesting stories to tell. It feels quite the privilege that he's willing to share some of his experiences in this episode and I definitely walked away from the conversation feeling a huge sense of admiration for those paramedics who service our valley and specifically... Paul having such a passion in advocating for optimal service delivery for the Nambucca Valley. I really hope you enjoy listening to this episode. If you would like to hear more from Paul, jump on the Valley Hub forum. You can find the link in the show notes. My name is Paul Wilson. I live in Nambucca Heads. Moved here about 12 years ago from out west at Lightning Ridge. Spent just over 10 years out there as a paramedic. Originally from Tassie, left home when I was just before I turned 17. Spent six years in the Navy travelling around Australia, various places, and then uh, left the Navy to join the ambulance service. So I've been with the ambulance service now for 22 years. What prompted you to join the Navy? I wanted to be a paramedic, but I was too young. (laughs) Yeah, for some strange reason, no one in the family was in the Navy when I decided that I was going to join. I was about 12, but always had an interest in first aid and medical type things and knew that I wanted to be a paramedic and thought that if I joined the Navy as a medic, then I'd be qualified when I was old enough to be eligible and I was um, and I was successful in getting in. So it worked really well. Can we talk some more about your experiences in the Navy? I guess there would have been a bit of moving around and exposure to a lot of different health scenarios. Yeah, so I did, I did my basic training in Victoria where everyone uh, trains at HMAS Cerberus and then uh, once I'd completed my medical training worked in the Navy hospital there for it was a long time ago now probably two years and then moved to uh, Fremantle over in Perth uh, and spent uh, three years there and worked on I went to sea on a destroyer a Navy ship uh, for some time and then was lucky enough to spend some time on a patrol boat which is very rare. They don't have medics on patrol boats, but uh, they needed a medic for the mission that they were doing, so I got to spend three months on a patrol boat, which was absolutely fantastic. Um, so I did that. And then I wasn't going to get to go back to sea for a while just because of the job that I was doing, uh, and then left Perth and moved over to Nara, south of Sydney, and worked at the Naval Air Base down there for a couple of years until I left and joined the ambulance service. What was your experience of training in paramedicine? Can you tell me a little bit more about the kinds of things that you were exposed to in training? Yeah, it was good. It was it was very quick. It was seven weeks in the classroom, I think, from memory. Just basic induction. And then it was out on the road into the big wide world. And yeah, as a 
yeah, jumping into the fire pretty much. But I was luckily lucky enough that I worked in Sydney, in southwest Sydney. So Bankstown, Liverpool, Fairfield, those places that were probably the busiest places in the state to work. So the sheer volume of work was really good training and it was I was uh, around the time of the Sydney Olympics. So there was still a lot of really interesting work in Sydney, a lot of drugs and heroin and shootings and stabbings and car accidents and it was it was a really good way to learn my craft um, before I got sent out west to Lightning Ridge, mm. <laughs> which was um, the complete opposite, but, yeah, just as enjoyable. Having seen such a huge scope of work, is there something that stands out to you as the most significant learning experience during your time in Western Sydney? Uh, it was just the sheer volume of work. It was – so you – I mean, you can only do jobs so quickly, but um, we were doing 14-hour night shifts and you don't really get a break. So you were cycling through you know, nine, ten jobs a shift and every shift there was someone critically ill. So it was, it was really good to learn. And because there was, there's a lot of paramedics in Sydney, if someone's really sick, you can get back up straight away. So that was good. You get to learn off really senior, really experienced paramedics and watch what they do and how they do it. And then, obviously, once once I completed my training in the city, I had an option to stay in the city or go to a, a station of my choosing. There was a list of stations out in the country, but they couldn't tell us where we were going to work in the city. Um, and I was living just north of Wollongong and travelling up to the city every day. And I didn't want to be posted sort of in, in the northern reaches of Sydney because I didn't really want to live in the city. It was just too expensive back then. Um, so I chose to go out west. But, yeah, the difference was staggering. Yeah, You don't have backup out west. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's, there's no one around. Yeah, so you're on, you're on your own. So I really had to draw on what I learned in Sydney to get by. Yeah, it was good. It was really interesting. Do you remember your first day working out west, what you were thinking? I remember, I remember the first night I got to Lightning Ridge. So I had my little city car, packed to the hilt, drove out, was driving out with a friend who was going to Walgett. So we drove together. Um, and just outside of Walgett, I hit a kangaroo, smashed the front of my car in. So I pulled into Lightning Ridge with coolant leaking everywhere in a wrecked car. I was pretty downhearted. And uh, I was staying in like the uh, temporary room at the ambulance station and I uh, went to bed. The guys that were there that night, the Ambos, did a really big job. Where a child was unfortunately killed in a car accident. And uh, the next morning I, I woke up and I went and went for a bit of a drive around town and I thought, oh, what have I done? I'd never been west of the Great Dividing Range. I had no idea how remote Lightning Ridge was. But it was there. It was like working on the moon compared to being in the city. But the guys, that the people I worked with out there were really good and yeah, I settled in pretty quickly and, and really enjoyed it. I guess you would have to develop a sense of trust with your colleagues quite quickly working in that space too. Absolutely, yeah, because they're all you've got for... Uh, Ambulance-wise, yeah. And a lot of the times you find yourself working by yourself, not not through um, planned, you know, someone might call in sick and there's no one else in town and you're by yourself for the day. So you have to, um, yeah, you have to be confident, which, I mean, I wouldn't have been early on in my career, not for the first couple of years, but over time you get more confident. Uh, it was just, it's really interesting work out west. It's, I think every paramedic should do it because it's just so far removed from anything else you'll ever do. You're with patients for, I mean, over here in Maxville, Nambucca, we're with someone for maybe an hour at the most, 
but out west you can be with people for, for hours on end and it makes a big difference. And especially knowing that there's no one around to help you by yourself. When you've had people in your care for hours, is that because there's a lack of capacity in hospitals or...? No, it's, it's more the remote areas that we travel to. So you might, we might go to a, an address that's two hours away from town and if there's someone really sick, you may be with that person, person in the home for half an hour, an hour to get them stabilised and then bring them back. So, yeah, it's just, a, it's just the travel times and the distances and, and you know, if, if, if people are trapped in car accidents or underground in mines, we did a lot of mines rescue type jobs, then that obviously... You can be with people for quite a long period of time. I'm curious about the collaboration with other emergency services out west and how that compares to, I guess, the field that you work in now in the Nambucca Valley. Yeah, yeah, we work pretty closely with each other and it's definitely beneficial to know who you're working with. It's the same everywhere, staff get rotated, but you have... We worked quite closely with the police, probably because they're the only other full-time employed emergency service. The... The fire brigade have retained firefighters, so they do have other jobs. And the SES were volunteer rescue, but they were really good when it came to mines rescue. Most of the SES rescue guys were miners as well, so they knew what they were doing. They were really proficient, and we, a lot of the times we did place our lives in their hands, getting in and out of mines and knowing where we could go. You know, because a lot of the times we'd go down in a mine after it had already collapsed. So you knew it was really dangerous and there was a possibility of further collapse. So I just stayed on the hip of one of the rescuers that I trusted the most and wherever he went, I went. But, yeah, it was pretty sketchy. Sounding to me as though there's definitely been times, possibly more than you have disclosed, where your safety has definitely been in question, you know, specifically working in, in areas at the height of the heroin epidemic, as you mentioned. Have there been any supports in place or were there any supports in place during that time in terms of mental health supports? It's evolving, yeah. It, it, early on in my career, I mean, this is over 20 years ago, we'd, we'd do a big job and a manager would be at the hospital waiting for us and we'd have a debrief, we'd have a chat about it. But um, And that was fine. I never needed any more than that. Some paramedics probably did. But nowadays there's a lot more in place. So we have staff psychologists and an employee assistance program, multiple outlets where you can reach out and talk to someone as well as if, if we do a job that's challenging or um, involves a child or, or is traumatic in any way, then we're actually contacted by staff support services and, and they check in on us and ask us if we're all right and if we need to talk to anyone. And it's pretty comprehensive. It's good. Can you talk to how the working conditions and environment uh, out west compares to working in the Nambucca Valley? Yeah, very different. Work and life were just intermingled, really. We, we would do eight days on and then have six days off. Uh, and when we would do our eight days on, we'd do our day shifts. But as soon as we finished of an afternoon, we'd take the ambulances home and we'd continue to work. We just would work from home. So it was quite regular that do a couple of jobs during the day and then you'd have a really busy night. So you'd be out all night working and then you'd continue to work into the next day um, and just grab sleep where you could. And for the eight days, yeah, just eat, sleep, work. It was. It could be quite busy. But then, I mean, there were days when, yeah, you might get one job and it's a pretty relaxing day. You have a sleep on the lounge and catch up. Mm. <laughs> but um, and quite often, we would work, or I would work on my days off if the station was short. Because there was only four or five of us at the station, 
if someone was off sick and someone was out of town, then there was no one else really to work. So quite often they would ring me up at home when I was on my days off. Oh, can you help out? Go down to the station, pick a car up and go and do a job. So it was a pretty regular thing. It's very different over here. Here it's your shifts are really busy. So I tend to just go in and do my shift and then come home and that's it. That's home life. It's not work. And we don't do on-call over here. We used to up until a couple of years ago, but it's just too busy. So they've now made Nambucca Station and Maxville Stations 24 hours. So we have a dedicated night shift and a dedicated day shift, which means that the staff numbers have doubled. But, yeah, what would happen was we'd be on-call, Nambucca and Maxville and other stations, Yurunga, places like that, we would work during the day and we'd take the ambulance home at night and we'd be out all night working and then we'd be too fatigued to work the next day so the valley wouldn't have an ambulance until we'd come back online at midday or one, two o'clock or whatever time it was. So, yeah, it just wasn't feasible. So they brought in, brought in the extra shifts. Tell me a little more about the move from Lightning Ridge to the Nambucca Valley. Yeah, we talk about it all the time, actually. People always ask how we got over here. So Brody, my stepson's here. Um, I met his mother when I was working in Lightning Ridge and he was eight, I think you were, bro, about eight. So we were, we were together for a while and, and we've got uh, two boys, Damon and Cameron, and we were really enjoying Lightning Ridge. Work was great. Carol had a really good job. She was working in health as well and everything was just ticking along nicely. But we knew that Brody was getting older and there was less and less for him out there. He was right into footy and... You know, we'd go away on Saturday mornings for him to play footy and it was a two-and-a-half, three-hour drive for one game of footy, which was fine. We, we enjoyed that, but he was getting to an age where there was no longer junior footy and schooling wasn't the best and there was really not a lot of other opportunity for him out there and I was getting itchy feet as well as Carol. So we took a holiday. We went to the Gold Coast with the kids and then we drove down from the border to Lauriton and we stopped in at every town with an ambulance station to see what, what we liked. And we missed one town on the, tra- on the trip south, and it was Nambucca. I'd been to Nambucca once before, but Carol hadn't. We got to Lauriton and we drove in, and Carol said, no, this is not for me, which she did at every other town. So we turned around and we came back to Nambucca and we drove in past the tourist information centre along the water, and we got to Bellwood Park, where the park and the water is. And Carol said, yep, this will do. This is where I want to be. So we stayed here for a week, I think, down at the White Albatross. We bumped into people from out west that we knew that were staying over here and they showed us around and it just ticked all the boxes. Yeah. So I was lucky enough at that stage that it coincided with uh, a change in the way that ambulance were moving people around and they were starting to reward people for, for serving time in stations that were, that were traditionally difficult to fill and Lightning Ridge was one of those stations. So they... they backdated a points system similar to what the teachers had and it meant that I had uh, I was on maximum number of points position became available at Maxville and I threw my hat in the ring and they rang me up straight away and said do you want a job at Maxville and I said oh I know Nambucca but I don't know Maxville when do you need an answer and the lady said I need an answer by tomorrow lunchtime so shit so did as much research as I could, tried to ring the station, couldn't get hold of anyone. Carol and I sat down and had a big chat and uh, and decided, yeah, we'll, we'll take it and see what happens. So I transferred to Maxville and we rented here and I worked at Maxville. I had to stay at the station when I was on call 
So that meant being away for four days at a time, four days, four nights. And I did that for probably nine months and then was lucky enough to get a transfer here to Nambucca. Um, and that was it. Yeah. It's a long story, but that's how it happened. During that first period of working in the Nambucca Valley and I, I guess acclimatising to being part of our community, what were you thinking, you know, having come from such a different scope of practice uh, in Lightning Ridge? It was, it was the perfect mix between Lightning Ridge and Sydney. It was busy enough that you got to use all your skills regularly and do the things that you enjoy doing at work and, and a good variety of work as well as work near the water, which you never had out west. <laughs> it was nice, nice to occasionally go to the beach and have nice coffee and things like that. Yeah, I, I just really enjoyed it. It was good, good to be somewhere new and, and the big concern for us was, was the kids, how well they'd settled in. And Brody settled in straight away and made friends with guys at school that he's still friends with today. So that was really, really important for us and really reassuring. And the little kids started school over time. And yeah, it just seemed to be a really smooth transition. It was, it was hard for Carol being away from the family and for Brody too. Um, they have a big family out west, but we tried to get out back out west you know, when we could so to make it a bit easier. But yeah, it seemed to go fairly smoothly. And how long have you been in the Nambucca Valley now? I think we moved here in 2010. Carol moved over before me. I, I had to continue working for a couple of weeks and then in that couple of weeks it actually flooded out west and I was isolated and couldn't, couldn't come across. So I stayed there and uh, she was over here with the kids for two or three weeks and then I came across. But I think it was in, oh, I'd be guessing, I'd say March 2010 or thereabouts, yeah. So it's been a while now. That seems a nice segue into um, talking about your experiences during uh, the floods and bushfires and certainly during the impacts of the pandemic. I'm just um, curious as to whether you can talk to how that may have impacted service and I guess also how it impacted you as a professional working in that space. Yeah, it was. It impacted us a lot. I mean, we got a lot of extra resources sent to the area, obviously, because they needed, but... Um, yeah, the bushfires were pretty. Yeah, they they were pretty intense. I was fortunate enough when I joined the ambulance service, and I was I did a short stint of time. I left Lightning Ridge before I met Carol, and I moved back down to Nara because uh, I have a daughter that lives down there, and she was very young at the time. So I went to work down there for eighteen months, and in that time, I went down to Canberra to work at the bushfires down there, and it reminded me very much of what I experienced in Canberra. Just the ferocity and, yeah, it was pretty overwhelming, just the amount of people that it displaced and it was, uh, it was challenging for us. We, we didn't – the ambulance sort of tends to split you know, during large events like floods and fires. They'll keep crews on the road doing what we normally do and then they'll put in extra crews um, for the surge of, of work to do with the, uh, the emergency that's going on. So f- for the fires I did some surge work and that was just – basically strategically placing ambulances where they may need them. Thankfully, we weren't too busy looking after people that were seriously injured, although there were people that, that were affected. So that was a challenge. Um, and the floods the floods were pretty bad. Yeah, for, um, speaking to a lot of people in the valley, it was the worst that they'd seen in their lifetime. So, yeah, just really sad, sad to see people lose homes and pets and animals and... You know, everything that goes along with it is really sad, but 
difficult for us. Access is the biggest problem with us. Yeah, we can't can't use the roads to get to where you normally go. So the various rescue services have the boats and um, utilise helicopters a lot. So that that's really helpful. Yeah. Talking about seeing community pulling together, is there something about that period that stands out to you um, in terms of how the valley have come together? Yeah, I, I think when you have situations like that, whether it's flood or fly, fire or uh, and it affects a, a community in general, you get, you get everyone wanting to put their hands up and, and help. And it's amazing. Like it, it's really quite visible to see from the outside looking in how much a can, community can achieve when everyone's very single-minded. Day to day, people just go about their business and sort of keep to themselves. But when you have an event like a flood or a fire... Um, you know, and everyone's working together to accommodate and feed and house and look after people. It's just, yeah, it's really noticeable because a lot of that looking after people side of it comes back, that's our daily work, you know. But, um, yeah, to see the community chipping in and doing it, is, it gives you a sense of you've chosen the right place to live. Yeah, it's really heartwarming. So you've talked a little bit about COVID. I'm sure that there are significant impacts on how you practice. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, it's very challenging. It doesn't change the, the way we do what we do so much. It's just how cumbersome wearing all the equipment is, really, the infection control, which is super important. I mean, you, no one wants to catch COVID. And thankfully, it doesn't seem to have been as bad as the early reports were indicating. But I remember when it first started and it was coming into summer, and uh, we had to wear all the gear. And it was just so hot. I mean, I'm from Tassie. I'm not used to hot. I don't know how I survived in Lightning Ridge for so long. But um, it was, yeah, really hard, really hard. And I really felt for the guys in Sydney that were spending 14 hours or longer in in this gear. It was just yeah, horrendous. And, and as well as other health workers too, you know, hospital staff and doctors and things like that. And... Just the sheer volume of work, you know, people that would normally stay at home and manage a cold thought they had COVID and they'd ring the ambulance and they'd have to be isolated from everyone else. And logistically it was really hard because the hospitals aren't set up to isolate a large number of people and if you have a ward where you're isolating people, then you've got people in there that you think might have COVID. Do you put, in, do you put into that room a three-year-old with a runny nose because you don't want them to get COVID? So it's, it's really logistically a really hard thing to do and it impacted us a lot and it was also really stressful it was at a time when and it's still that time now we're we're un- severely under-resourced we're probably we're definitely the biggest ambulance service in Australia but we need to be a lot bigger to manage the work we've got you know, staff were uh, they were cancelling holidays and asking us to work extra shifts and it was just it seemed to be relentless yeah, a lot of people got burned out and left the job mm-hmm. over it because it was just too much I guess the community are broadly aware that um, burnout is a significant issue, particularly post-COVID for paramedics. But I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how it impacts specifically uh, the paramedics servicing our area. You know, if there's anything that you think the community can do to support local paramedics. Yeah. Yeah, there has been a lot of burnout. Yeah, it's, look, it's hard to say what our area is like compared to other areas because I, I don't know what the other areas are like. I know that um, at the moment, New South Wales is undergoing a significant amount of people that are leaving the job f- for various reasons. COVID is definitely a large one. 
the fact that we're the lowest paid paramedics in Australia is definitely another. Hopefully that'll change today's budget day, so fingers crossed. I'm a union rep, so it's hard to <laughs> it's hard to not be political. But suffice to say that there is a lot of burnout in New South Wales ambulance, particularly through COVID. I mean we've we've had the bushfires, the floods and COVID, which has gone on a lot longer than what anyone thought, and the government froze our pay during the whole thing. So there's a lot of resentment towards the powers that be. And a lot of, there's a lot of opportunity now for paramedics to find work elsewhere. We're now, we're now registered, same as doctors and nurses. So if you're a registered paramedic, then you can find work as a paramedic elsewhere, which is a really great thing. So, yeah, that's, the attrition rate's really high. I don't actually know what it is. I'd like to know what it is. But um, I know it's very high at the moment, yeah. We're losing a lot of really good paramedics, unfortunately. Do you think there's anything the community can do to support local paramedics? Just be supportive. I mean, everyone – look, everyone wants more pay. That's a given. Everyone wants what they're entitled to. We feel, as a union, we feel that we should be paid – the same as every other AMBO in Australia. We do the same work. And as a side note, we're, the union is putting in a wage claim to say that this is what we do and, and it's an independent review of, of what we do and what we're worth. Um, and that'll, that'll come out in the future. But, yeah, we just, we just want support from the community. And we get it. 99% of the time we're really well supported. People are happy to see us. People are happy to help us. Yeah, it's, it's a... It's a really good job in that regard because when you turn up, generally people are happy to see you. So, yeah. Politics aside, just the actual doing of my job, like on the road and looking after people, I still love it. Yeah, it's still really rewarding. Um, it's, it's good to be able to help people in the community. And I really enjoy working in a small town where you go downtown and people stop you in the street and let you know how they're going and, you know, oh, I fell over a couple of months ago and, you know, I'm, I'm all good now and... Thanks for your help and it's, yeah, it's really nice. This is a real privilege, um, I guess, to be a part of somebody's worst day and to make a difference but also to be able to partake in somebody's best day. I'm thinking specifically about deliveries and, uh, yeah, to be a part of bringing a baby into the world must be a pretty incredible thing. (laughs) The first baby that I ever delivered was my son Um, and that was after being in the job for... A number of years. So I'd, I'd managed to successfully avoid delivering a baby for quite some time. I'd been there for many births but hadn't been the, the treating paramedic, so to speak. So, yeah, to deliver my own son in a hospital because the nurse was busy looking after a, a critically ill child, that was interesting. But, yeah, generally when people are ringing an ambulance, it's one of their worst days. So it's nice to be able to walk in and be reassuring and, and, and help. And sometimes we don't have to do a lot, sometimes we do. But, yeah, it's just nice to be part of that journey and hopefully to, to deliver them to hospital um, better than when we found them. Yeah. So that's, that's all part of why we enjoy what we do. I guess you probably can't talk specifics, but is there anything that stands out to you as a memorable day of working in the Nambucca Valley? There's jobs that are really challenging from an ambulance point of view and sometimes you get a really good result, which is not always the case and they're the jobs that you remember there's a lot of jobs that obviously you can't talk about specifically because it's a small town and people know people and but yeah like, yeah it's it's a very satisfying job it can be frustrating at times 
can be very frustrating at three in the morning when when someone wants you to feed the cat and lock the house up and turn all the lights off and make sure the car's locked and check the mail and yeah do all those kind of things <laughs> but yeah as a whole it's really really enjoyable statistically we know that more births happen at night uh, than they do during the day. Is there anecdotal evidence with regard to heart incidents or heart events? There would be. Yeah, I'm not privy to it. Look, I know. I know when I worked in the city, people used to get fluid on their lungs a lot. It's a lot. It's treated a lot better now by medications that are available. Back then, it wasn't, and you would know that if the phone rang at four in the morning, it would be someone whose lungs were filling up with fluid. That was definitely time-related. Croup is always in winter when the air becomes really cold. If you go to a sick child with a cough or shortness of breath, you know it's going to be croup. So there's definitely times when you can predict spikes in your workload and different types of workload. Full moon definitely does affect people with mental health. I can guarantee you it does. Can you tell me a bit more about that? It's just a a fact. When I joined the job, people would say to me, oh, it's a full moon, it's going to be busy tonight. And I took it with a grain of salt and went, oh, yeah, that's that you have me on. But absolutely, the the increase in mental health-related work definitely increases around a full moon. Yeah. And I I don't know why. I'm not a scientist. But there would be definitely be worth doing more studies on. I'm guaranteed there'd be studies that have done on it, but it's interesting. It's a very large part of what we do now. Mental health. Yeah. Very much so. It used to be more in the domain of the police and and it was seen as, you know, people that were acting up and the police had to step in and help. But many, many years ago the, they looked more into it and it's it's definitely a medical condition so they've, they've made it, um, rightly so, more our area of responsibility and given us a lot more tools to be able to deal with it. We still work in conjunction with the police when there's issues around safety but now we're able to more effectively treat and manage people that are having acute episodes, yeah. So looking at acute mental health care, uh, what does intervention look like at a health level? Basically the, the Mental Health Act says that if someone's not of sound mind and can't make their own decisions for their own safety and they're at risk, then we can step in and do that. So that, that means that they lose the right to say what's going on. And that's a really big thing because you're taking that liberty away from someone. So we don't do it lightly. But if we think that they're a danger to themselves or someone else, then, yeah, we can, what they call, schedule someone under the Mental Health Act. And all that does is say that we take them from where they are to a hospital where they can be examined by a mental health team. But we we do have powers in that we can physically restrain someone in padded restraints. We, We don't wrestle with people. And we can chemically restrain them so we can actually give them a sedative to control their behaviour so they don't injure us or someone else. Mm. Yeah, so it's it's a lot better than it used to be. I remember 20 years ago in the city where, you know, you would be wrestling people on the ground and it's not not good. Yeah. You'd have big wrestling matches with people that were just having psychotic episodes. Mm. You know, it wasn't their, their fault. And you would end up with the patient being injured or police being injured or, or paramedics being injured. It's, yeah, it's not something that you ever want to do. Is there a correlation between the increase in ice usage and mental health incidents that you're attending? So drug use in general. So when I started it was heroin. And from a paramedic point of view, looking after someone who's had heroin, they're really easy because they just sleep basically. 
yeah, it's it's very low risk. But if you are looking after someone who's on ice or methamphetamines, then yeah, it's it's really dangerous, really unpredictable, really volatile, can be quite violent, just a really dangerous situation. So that's that's why there was a a real shift in the way that we look after people that are drug affected, because we just we're getting so many paramedics injured and um, off the road because we had no way of dealing with these people. Um, yeah, I mean they have. People that are on ice have superhuman strength. It's, you would never try and hold someone down. It's just not worth it. So, I mean, our number one priority is is to make ourselves safe and then obviously the patient, make them safe. So a lot of the times we'll utilise police or, yeah, just to, just to help. Would you offer anything to school leavers who are looking to get into the ambulance service? I think New South Wales is the only... Ambulance service where you, it's a vocational entry as well as university. So I think every other state and territory you have to have done the degree. And realistically, it's pretty rare that you would get in without the degree these days. Although I did, I was really lucky and I, that's why I joined the Navy as a medic because although I didn't have the degree, I had a pretty good background of experience. It's really competitive now. Universities all over Australia are training people in in degrees in paramedics and they'd be putting out Australia-wide thousands of people that are qualified every year for only a handful of jobs. So a lot of a lot of university graduates in paramedicine are going to London Ambulance Service um, because they have a really high attrition rate. They have a huge service as well. So a lot of people are going over there and getting experience and then using that to get back in over here. But... Um, I mean, it's changed significantly since I applied. Yeah, I was. We didn't even do computer testing when I applied. I was. I don't even remember how old I was. Must have been twenty-one. So yeah, it was just an interview. Um, some map reading. I can't even remember what else it was. But yeah, it was pretty daunting. It was over five and a half thousand applicants when I joined, for maybe two hundred jobs. So it was super competitive then. Yeah, not much changed. Do you have to do any driving education? No, no, no driving whatsoever. They, before I joined, they were doing. Uh, they were sending people off to do defensive driving education, and they found that those people were having more accidents for some reason. Whether it was uh, overconfidence, I don't know what it was, but no, you, you have you had to have when I joined um, a light truck. Licence because our rescue truck, we used to do rescue and the rescue trucks in Sydney were quite large so you had to be able to drive one of those. Apart from that, it was just away you go. New trainees out on the road don't drive for the first um, month or two. They just observe basically, learn from their training officer and when when we feel that they're ready then we dip their toes in so they'll drive back from hospital to the station and get used to that and then they'll drive on non-emergency jobs and then they'll work their way up to driving under lights and sirens. And do we have trainees in our area? We do now, yeah. Yeah, I'll have a trainee at the moment. So that's a new challenge that I'm not used to. So traditionally we've never had trainees here but because we were on call. So they would turn up to work in the morning um, and we would be on fatigue. So there was just no point. Trainees can't do on call. They can't work by themselves. So it was never an option to have trainees in this area, but it is now. Um, and both Maxville and Nambucca have trainees as well as Areas that have always had trainees like Coffs Harbour and, and the bigger stations, Kempsey, Port Macquarie. 
But um, yeah, it's good. It, it uh, changes our role when we're a trainer, um, but it's enjoyable. Yeah, it's good to see new people coming through. Can you offer any observations of where you've come from to how you see the service now and what could change in the future that would improve working conditions for local paramedics? The ambulance service has changed massively from when I joined. It was a it was a pretty simple role that we did well when I joined and we had protocols that we abide by for, for every different condition and we would have to memorise those word for word um, out of the book. Nowadays... They're more of a guideline because people are so well-educated and our role has changed and is, continues to change more from emergency medicine to low acuity stuff. So 20-plus years ago, you know, we were dealing in road trauma because the, because the highways were terrible and, um, and car safety wasn't as good. So we were doing a lot of high-impact trauma and things like that, whereas nowadays it seems to be an ageing population, a large ageing population that are really well looked after and well medicated so they're living longer with chronic conditions. So it's moved into more keeping people out of hospital, managing their ailments at home and we have a team of people that we call extended care paramedics and they, they deal specifically in that low acuity stuff. So they, they do things like give antibiotics for urinary infections and chest infections and um, they suture small wounds and they refer people for x-rays on their ankles if they've rolled their ankles, things like that, change catheters. So I think that that's more where the ambulance service will go, into low acuity care. And I think for the valley it'll be good because you can't access GPs readily in the valley. We have GPs here but their books are closed or you're going to a GP that you don't know um, so they're unwilling to, to really treat you the way that a normal GP would. And a lot of the GPs are so busy, they, they recommend to ring an ambulance and go to hospital, which is not the solution. So yeah, I think I think you'll see a shift. They've just announced a large amount of paramedics for New South Wales, so I think that that will see more training and a shift towards low acuity stuff, which will be quite interesting. We should see more intensive care paramedics in the area, which is a good thing. They have um, some pretty advanced skills that, that come in handy. What kind of skills would they have outside of regular paramedics? So aside from what, what we do, what I would do as a P1, they have a, um, advanced airway management. Um, so they can intubate people. They can deal with someone who's got a collapsed lung. They can put a, a tube into their chest. They can give a lot more, a few heavier-duty drugs for people that are, that are really crook. And we, we have these guys guys and girls in the area that we can call on for backup when we need them. But when you when you have a lot more in the area on the road, it makes our job a lot easier, yeah, especially when we can call on them and get them quite quickly. But, mm. yeah. So, yeah, interesting times. Hopefully we'll see a pay rise today <laughs> and we'll be able to retain some more staff and they won't be leaving to go to other states. And, yeah, over, over probably the next two years or so we might see an increase in numbers in the area and increasing skills as well. But we have some pretty skillful MBOs in the area. It's a good area to work and to live, so it's attractive for paramedics. So people do their time training elsewhere and they bide their time until they can get to an area like this. So you have people that are pretty experienced and and have a lot of knowledge. I've been doing it for 22 years and I'm still junior in the area compared to some people um, in, in skill and experience, yeah. So it's really good. Thank you so much for sharing, Paul. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
If you have any questions for Paul about his experiences or paramedical training, we would love for you to jump onto our hub forum and share your thoughts. And we can definitely put some questions to Paul if we have enough demand. I'm sure he would love, love, love to share more about his experience. So we hope that you'll tune in next time. And in the meantime, please feel free to share the podcast with your friends and family. Bye.